Beloved, this is the first Lord's Day of the month of December, which means that we have the blessing and privilege at the end of the service to celebrate communion, to take of the Lord's table. And what I want to do is I want to expand on a phrase that if you're here for a while, you might have heard me say before. During communion, I very often will say something along the lines of, we do this individual act of worship, but we are blessed to do it together as a corporate body of Christ. And I want to expand on that together aspect. And I want to do it in the context of where we find ourselves in our journey through the book of Hebrews. I want to do this for our blessing and benefit and edification in general, and then even in particular in terms of preparation for our approaching the Lord's table at the end of the service. And beloved, bottom line is this, God's purpose for man has never been isolation. From the very beginning, God said it is not good for man to be alone. That's why he gave, and of course, Genesis, the gift of woman to man. So that is the case with man in marriage, and that is the case for men and women, even in the body of Christ. There is a corporate gathering together that is at the essential heartbeat, God's heartbeat, with his intent and purpose for the church. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to expand on what we covered in brief last week, verses 24 and 25, and that is our text for this morning, but I'll read beginning in verse 19 to make sure we have the entirety of this passage in our mind as we look at this. This is the Word of God, Hebrews 10 and verse 19. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, what we have here is, as we're going through Hebrews, we have turned a page, so to speak, in that the first nine and a half chapters, from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 18, the author lays this tremendous foundation of an array, of a masterful array of deep doctrinal truths and teachings to lay a foundation for us. And now as we go to verse 19 of chapter 10 and through the rest of the book, the author has a greater focus on application, on exercising this array, this set of tremendous truths that he laid before us. And what we have here in verses 22 through 25 is the great central exhortation of this entire sermonic epistle. And the author brings us out with three exhortations, three lettuces. Let us, he says, let us draw near. 
Let us hold fast and let us think hard. It's how I captured the last one in verses 24 and 25. And again, what we're going to do this morning is focus and expand on these last two verses. Beloved, we are the church. We are the local church. This local church of Santan Bible Church. And when we consider Scripture, when we look at the Bible, the New Testament, we realize there are many different metaphors that God uses in Scripture to describe His church. Two of the most often used are the family of God and the house of God. We have been born into a family, and we are built into a house. And what we see here and what we'll bring out from verses 24 and 25 are two paths in the fork that lay before every professing Christian and even every possessing Christian, the broader scope of people that profess Christ and even also those who truly possess Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the two paths, and they are in sharp contrast. The one is to, and if you'll excuse the mixed metaphor, since God is the one that brings these different metaphors, the first is to abandon your family. The second path, the other fourth, the good path, is to edify your house, to build up your house. Because, beloved, Bottom line is we understand as adopted children, adopted daughters and sons of the Most High God, as new creatures in Christ Jesus, as those who want to think God's thoughts after God. I had wonderful fellowship this week on Friday morning with a brother, and part of our fellowship we talked about how as Christians we can be blessed by the teaching and the ministry and sermons from many different uh, men, some of whom are alive today and some who aren't, but always our desire is to think God's thoughts after God, not John Smith's thoughts after John Smith or anyone else. Now, having said that, we understand that we should love what God loves. And one of the things that becomes very clear in the New Testament is God loves his church. Therefore, ergo, we must also love the church, the church of God, the house of God, the church of God, the ecclesia of God, the Greek word which is translated as church. And what's interesting, that original language word for church, it's used over 110 times in the New Testament to describe the church. And to be sure, it does describe what is called the universal invisible church of God. Every man and woman since the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, every man and woman that are saved are part of this universal, invisible, eternal church of God. But what's fascinating is over 90 of the usages of that word in the New Testament out of the 110 plus, it describes not the universal, invisible, eternal church of God, but the predominant usage is the local church. That is the weight, that is the importance of church in the mind of God. And the reason is this, the church, the local church, Santan Bible Church, by way of obvious example, is the church in miniature. It's a replica of the whole. It gives visible and temporal expression to the invisible and eternal church of God. And beloved, understand this, your profession of Christ as your Savior, my profession of Christ as Savior is made in large part by visibly uniting with Christ's people. 
And even when we think of the unity, the true unity, the unity that is a fulfillment of Christ's high priestly prayer in John, that we would be one even as God the Son, Jesus the man, the God-man, and God the Father are one, that is realized eternally in what Christ has already done. There is a mystical, eternal, invisible unity of the entire church of God. And at the same time, that's the divine sovereignty aspect of it. There is a human responsibility. We are to live in such a way that demonstrates, that is, again, a visible manifestation of that unity. That is our responsibility. The indivisible and indestructible unity that God created is maintained visibly and demonstrated visibly in the local church. So, the first path that we see, and I'm going to take the middle, uh, the beginning of verse 25, so it's the middle of these two verses. The first path that I want to cover this morning is when one abandons his or her family, to abandon your family. That's the first fork in the road of these two paths. Now, having said that, perhaps you're familiar with the phrase rugged individualism. And there's a certain kind of innate part of me that kind of likes that. I would say that rugged individualism is part and parcel of the American spirit. And in fact, I would say it's part of what has made America great, or at one point was great, or whatever greatness is still maintained within it. And I reel myself back in before I go too far down that path. I do remember it came out when... Um, I was in Germany at the same time period that we were moving back east and coming back west. I was preaching in Germany, and my German translator kind of captured in his mind the distinction between the East Coast American mentality and the West Coast American mentality. And what he said was, it seems like people on the west of America have more of the blaze across the country and covered wagon type of mentality, kind of a rugged individualism. Now, having said all that, that can be very good. But, however, it is not always great. That does not reflect itself when it comes to body life in the church. Because you see here, in 22nd, 22nd, no, 21st century America, sorry, 21st century America, uh, commitment is rare. It's very rare. But there's nothing new under the sun. Commitment being rare is common now in the United States, and it was common and a pressing problem 2,000 years ago in Rome or in the Greco-Roman world, which is why the author writes what he writes. Look at what he says at the beginning of verse 25. He says, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. This is absolutely striking when we realize and consider that this is the great central exhortation, that when the author has made this pivotal, seminal transition to be more application-oriented in the rest of his letter, when he's setting the stage here, when he's giving his first impression, and you only have one opportunity to make a first impression, this is at the center of what his concern is. Why is that the case? And even the word forsaking, that's a strong word. It means to abandon, to desert. It would be used, as I said last week, of a soldier that would abandon and desert and shirk his responsibility and leave his guard post abandoned and his army vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. And beloved, why, we can ask, is this so serious? Because, understand this, when someone sins greatly, when someone falls, they never fall very far. 
When someone, someone is not walking with Christ, obeying God, reading scripture and praying, and then just trips and falls into adultery. Again, when someone falls, they don't fall very far. And the catastrophic failure at the end is always preceded by a series of poor decisions and poor habits. In fact, the word habit, ethos, ethic, it's preceded by poor decisions and poor habits, poor ethics. And very often, not always, but very often, the abandonment of the family of God is one of the first sins that creeps in. That's part of why it's so serious. One other element to bring out here to buttress this point is look for a moment at verses 26 and 27. So I'll read verse 25 again. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now look at what the author goes to, verse 26. He says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Now, someone might say, well, are you one of those fire and brimstone preachers? Well, I I don't suck it out of my thumb, but when the word of God talks about fire and brimstone, then that's what will come from this pulpit and from our classes as well. And certainly this terrifying fire that will consume the adversaries of God and this ongoing unrepentant sin would encompass any unrepentant ongoing sin. It would certainly encompass all the different sins that the author has covered already in the first nine and a half chapters of the book. But it should not escape our notice that the nearest antecedent, the last big sin that the author addressed right before he gave these strong, blistering words in verses 26 and 27 is this abandonment of the family of God. You see, beloved, because the church is the most precious thing that God possesses on earth. It's precious. You are precious. I am precious. We are precious because we are purchased with the blood of Christ. The church, this local body, is the earthly expression of heaven. We are the temple of God, God tells us in his word. And This is a huge part of our testimony, a huge part of our witness, a huge part of our martyrdom. Not not the way the word has evolved, meaning the loss of life, but our, our witness before a watching world. Because the world is watching. Many, if not most, that would be counted in the world might not necessarily admit that. But the world is watching. And our commitment to the family of God, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, which is ultimately a manifestation of our commitment to the Lord is a powerful part of our witness. That's why, for example, Jesus told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. So this is before the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. He's talking to his disciples, but it helps set the stage of what then is birthed and comes forth with the church. Matthew 5, verse 14, remember Christ told his disciples, you are the light of of the world. And the you are, the original language, that's plural, it's not singular. You are the light of the world. And then he continues, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He doesn't say a bachelor pad set on a hill cannot be hidden. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden. Beloved, one sheep doesn't make a flock. 
One organ, one limb doesn't make a body. And no member of the body, of the physical body, barring this other metaphor for a moment, no member of the body exists detached from the rest of the body. You can't have a pair of lungs sitting on the floor beating, making a body breathe in the uh, other room. In the same way, the health, the wellness, the witness, and the testimony of the body of Christ is dependent on all members faithfully ministering to one another. That's is was is at stake here. So one sheep doesn't make a flock. One organ doesn't make a body. One brick doesn't make a house. One person doesn't make a family. Can you imagine uh, VBS? Uh, this last summer we were blessed after uh, whatever, a 12, 13 year hiatus to have a vacation Bible school. We're looking forward to, Lord willing, we do another one this summer, hopefully with more children. But can you imagine taking 800 children that come to VBS, going to a field and turning them loose with no adults, no people around, say, hey, go and have fun. I think there might be a tiny bit of chaos, maybe just a tad of pandemonium might unfold from that. You know what? That's not a bad picture of the dynamic when you have professing believers bouncing around from church to church in the Southeast Valley. I remember when I first came to Santan, I heard about this dynamic called the Southeast Valley Shuffle. And what it was talking about there was just people, professing believers, kind of bouncing from one church to the other. In the 14 or so years I've been here, there's more churches that have popped up that seemingly at the surface might even seem to be somewhat similar doctrinally and philosophy of ministry, so it makes it even more complicated. But, beloved, that is not how God intended. There's no commitment, no submission, no local church, no identifiable body is what the author is warning against here. In his book, God's Church, Alan Stibbs had these choice words. He said this, quote, Any idea of enjoying salvation or being a Christian in isolation is absolutely foreign to the New Testament writings. The necessity of membership in the local church is never questioned. It's taken for granted. And Pastor Stibbs continues, Had we asked the believers of the apostolic period whether it was essential to join a church, they wouldn't have even understood what we were talking about because every believer was part of a local church, end quote. Now, to be sure, it is possible, and it's this exact dynamic that is at the heart of the human author of Hebrews as well as the divine God author of Hebrews. It is possible for somebody to be a member of the family of God, a true member without identifying with the physical expression of his family. But it's not good. It's not right. It's not healthy. It's dangerous. It's unhealthy. To refuse to be part of a local church shirks our responsibility to the universal body of Christ. And, beloved, it cuts one off from God's intended blessing. God's intended blessing. I understand that not that there is no perfect local church. You all know, in my estimation, Santana is kind of just this side of heaven. But we all are individually a work in process. Therefore, we are corporately a work in process. And I understand there are different dynamics and challenges. We understand that God loved the unlovely, me first, and he, he justified this sinful man. And I understand the dynamic there. But God's intent for this local church, your local church, or any other local church, if Santana is not yours, is for your blessing. 
and that you would be a blessing to others. William Newell, in his excellent commentary on Hebrews that I've been communing with in my entire study through here, wrote this. And he wrote this in 1947. And I'm giving you a specific date because it has to do with the chronology of the technological advancements at that point in time. William Newell said this gathering together does not mean turning on the radio. So we praise God for our technology. We praise God for the live stream. Uh, my beloved daughter-in-law, my beloved firstborn son is back doing sound. My beloved daughter-in-law is home because of a sick baby, and she's live streaming this. That's wonderful. Um, I also understand, I know we have a number of wonderful people, brothers and sisters, that watch on a regular basis who aren't part of Santan Bible Church, even from other states. And it's a wonderful blessing, brother, sister, for you to join us from afar, to have our hearts knit together through cyberspace. But having said that, that is wonderful if that's complementary and supplemental to your involvement in a local church. If you don't have a local body, brother, sister, you need one. Don't rob yourself of the joyful burden of a local body. If you're, again, if you're plugged into a local body and you're watching as something that's complementary, that's wonderful. If you're not plugged into a local body, beloved, understand this. The local body needs you and is missing you if you're not part of it. So that's a word of exhortation that I may give. And perhaps there even could be someone here in person that may be blessed or benefit from it. So that's the one path. Don't go there. It's a bad place. Don't abandon your family. The second path, the good path, the right path, is to edify your house. Beloved, the New Testament, again, teaches the church is the house of God. And God says every brick, every brick is necessary for this building. For example, the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 11, and on a side note, I'm not 100% sure yet, but I'm pretty sure that the next books that we'll go through when we're done with Hebrews is First and Second Thessalonians. Be that as it may, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build up one another. Build up one another. Oikodemeo, literally house building. Build up, it's just the same word that you would use to describe building a house. And the point here is this, beloved, God has formed you. He's molded you. He's composed your spiritual DNA. Um, I'm told by experts, whatever, I don't know if that's an unknown factor and a drip under pressure, but I've been told by experts that a snowflake, there are no two snowflakes exactly alike in the world. So also to be sure, there are no two bricks in the house of God exactly similar. There is a U-shaped brick in this local body or in another local body that you are to be part of. He fits you perfectly. God fits you perfectly to be sure into the universal house of God. And we'll see the full manifestation of what that means and even what that looks like in eternity in heaven. But even more pressing here and now by virtue of the usage in the New Testament in this passage is he fits you perfectly into this local house of God. And what we see in verse 24 and the end of verse 25 is that we edify our house by exercising love and by encouraging loyalty. First, verse 24, we edify our house. We build our house. We're used by God to build our house by exercising love. And I'm using 
exercising in both a verbal and adjectival sense. In other words, you exercising love and the stimulation you provide also exercises love in your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a both and. And that's why he says, look at the beginning of verse 24, and let us, the third let us, third exhortation, let us consider, let us think hard, let us set our minds down upon how to stimulate one another, to stimulate, agitate, provoke one another. And the whole one another here, what this is one of many one another passages in the New Testament. I mean, that's a phrase that if we kind of were to just read it at first glance, we might pass over this little phrase like one another. But when we see all the different imports and ways and exhortations and commands in Scripture around the one another passages of Scripture, what we understand is God says he provides for us so that we will then turn around and provide for one another. For example, God, and this is not a complete exhaustive list of one another passages, but just, just give us a flavor. In the New Testament, God commands us to edify one another by loving one another, be devoted to one another, give preference to one another, accept one another, admonish one another, rebuke one another, be united with one another. Again, even though we have this mystical unity that Christ formed, there is a human responsibility command to be united with one another, serve one another, show forbearance to one another, be patient with one another, be kind to one another, forgive one another, teach, help, encourage, restore one another, and the list goes on and on. Beloved, that is the heart of God. That's why God loves the church, and that's how and why we should love the church, and why he commands us to stimulate, to agitate, to provoke one another, where what God is doing here is he's calling us to catalytic actions with the idea that there would be chain reactions from our behavior towards love and good deeds, that they would be stirred up rather than pulled out. And there's so many passages we could go to, since my brain is somewhat in 1 Thessalonians from what I just read, turn back a few pages to 1 Thessalonians 2, and in verses 7 through 12, there's just a great statement that is rich, which reflects the heart of Pastor Paul as he's writing to this mature church in Thessalonica. Verse Thessalonians 2, 7, the Apostle Paul, Pastor Paul says, We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. I mean, just the pathos and the passion and the affection that Paul has for the church just bleeds from the text. Verse 9, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Beloved, building the house of God, which Christ said he would do, he said he would build his church in Matthew 16, but at our human responsibility, building the house of God takes effort, takes pain, takes labor, takes teamwork. And that's what Paul brings out here, but now verse 10. He says, you are witnesses, and so is God 
how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know, we were exhorting and encouraging, same word as we see in verse 25, exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. And then now, finally, verse 12, a purpose statement. So that, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Beloved, that is the heart of God in Thessalonians. That's the heart of God here in Hebrews. Exercise your love. Let us think hard how to stimulate, stir up, spur one another to love and good deeds. And we can't do that if we're not gathered together. This is a time, beloved, when we bend vertical blessings into horizontal relationships, horizontal conversation. And even as we're maybe talking some hard truths one-on-one with a brother or sister, you might at times come across the question, who, who do you think you are to get in my kitchen like that? And the biblical answer is, I'm your brother in Christ. I'm your sister in the Lord. It's not a demonstration of love of others to ignore significant serious issues. That's a manifestation of self-love, self-love not love of others. And I was thinking about this dynamic. Uh, we just completed another one of our membership classes. Many of you know I sat in on it because my two sons and my beautiful daughter-in-law were going through it, and what better place would there be for me on a Sunday afternoon than to be with my children? And I remember we had a young man in the first two of the membership classes. He was new to the church. I remember meeting him the very first Sunday, and he was in those first two membership class sessions. At the end of the second, he went up to Tim Palin, uh, the chairman of our elder board who was leading the class, and the young man went up to Tim and said, and, and I remember talking to him, and he had previously said he was just loving Santan. He loved the you know, teaching. He loved the music. He loved the body life. And the small church that he came from, there were different problems and issues. All that to say, he came up to Tim at the end of the second class, and he said, you know what, I'm not going to be here anymore. I'm feeling convicted. I need to go back to the church that I was part of and see how God might be able to use me there to maybe correct some wrongs or at least to fill in some things that are needful to be filled. What do you think Tim's response was? Beautiful, beautiful. A beautiful manifestation and a reflection of this dynamic this body life beloved the house of god your true family is needful of your gifts and it's impoverished if you don't exercise them one can be bodily present but not mentally emotionally passionately devotionally present as well so we edify our house by exercising love secondly we edify our house by encouraging loyalty at the end of verse 25. Again, this is both the verbal and adjectival. This is you encouraging loyalty in your brothers and sisters and the loyalty you demonstrate to them that encourages them as well. Now, loyalty. What do we mean by loyalty? And I think the best way to understand, because I don't see I don't see the word loyalty, you know, here in Hebrews. But what do we mean? What do I mean by this? What does God mean by this? By this concept? And I would say it's loyalty to the three big G's: loyalty to God, loyalty to God's gospel, and right here, loyalty to the gathering together of God's people. That's why he says, "But." 
but, so not forsaking your assembling together as is the habit of some, but strong contrast, encouraging one another, calling another one alongside of you. Uh, the author of Hebrews has already given this exhortation. Back in chapter 3, verse 13, there he said, encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today. Why, why does the author say that there is a need to be encouraging one another day by day as long as it's still called today? Because, he says at the end of verse 13, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. We are born again men and women. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit and we are trapped in this body of death. There is still a battle going on. That's why we need daily encouragement from one another. So the author of Hebrews brings that out. Paul, certainly this was very much on his heart and mind. There are many I could go to. I'll just pick one. Romans chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. The Apostle Paul said to the saints in Rome, I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, you may be built up. That is, watch this, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. This dynamic, this interweaving of ministry and hearts and thinking and like-mindedness and, and activities. It may be mopping the floor. It may be cleaning toilets. It may be teaching. It may be a variety of things. Many different members, but one body. Beloved, I need you. You need me. We need each other. And you bring something to Santan Bible Church that is God-given and unique. 1 Peter 4, 10, Peter, so besides the author of Hebrews, besides Paul, Peter, 1 Peter 4, 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You see, beloved, gifts aren't given for us to consume. Gifts are given for us to contribute. Um, someone may say, well, but I'm not sure what my gift is. I'm not sure what my giftedness is. I, you know, I, need, I, need to, oh, I see a need there, but you know I need to pray about it. And that's, that's fine. We don't want to usurp the role of Holy Spirit in a brother or sister's life. But I can tell you this. One thing we don't need to pray about is whether or not we should serve. Our giftedness from the Lord needs to be constantly exercised. Because even though this giftedness is God-given, it can languish. Like unused muscles, it can atrophy to the point of almost extinction. This is why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, as Paul's writing from prison awaiting execution, Paul tells young Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. Paul understood that the gift, the giftedness that Timothy had was given to him by God. That's the divine sovereignty, but there was also a human responsibility. Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. Beloved, God gifts you a church to grow us as a church. God gifts us a church to grow us as a church. And this is not the call of a privileged few. This is the privileged call 
of the many. This is the privileged call of every man, woman, and child who are in Christ, with Christ as their Lord and Savior. And his lordship, beloved, is measured by my stewardship. His lordship over your life is measured by your stewardship of your giftedness from the Lord. And beloved, heaven is brought down to earth when God's children gather. When the people of God assemble every Lord's Day, when we gather together to glorify God and to stimulate one another, to love and good deeds, and to encourage one another. That is the greatest manifestation, the greatest reflection, the greatest picture of what heaven will be like here on earth. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is done, my friend, that is done, beloved, in the church. Our lives are a reflection of our hearts. And just a quick word of application, mother and father, our children, I think I mentioned this last week, our children see what's important to you. Your children are watching and they are learning. We need to demonstrate to them that we are thinking God's thoughts after God. What's important to God, what God loves, is important to us. We love what God loves and God loves the church. And our children need to see the importance and priority of God. And then finally in the text, verse 25 at the end, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, the day, the final day, that could happen at any time. It's imminent. Uh, the author Hebrews has it here. Paul brings it out, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13. Paul wrote to that immature church in Corinth, each man's work will become evident for the day. The same day the author of Hebrews is talking about. The day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Or Peter. Peter highlights the same. 2 Peter 3.10 The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. The day of the Lord. Peter adds that extra element about this particular day that both Paul and the Hebrew author cited before. But notice this, Peter then immediately follows up with a pointed striking question. Verse 11 of 2 Peter 3, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be, ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? Beloved, holy living, godly living, living together in Christ, being involved in others' lives, life-on-life life investment, and even this whole dimension of fire that we read from Paul in 1 Corinthians, and uh, Peter one here has more to do with the whole universe, but we understand that in the same way that a smelter, we actually have a brother, Eric, that is, is a blacksmith, and uh, he was, I was talking to him um, out in the courtyard in between, that basically a, a smelter will have his pot of silver, precious metal, and he'll look at it and he'll stir it up and then the, the dross appears up, he will scour away and he'll keep doing that until he can see more and more of the reflection of himself in that smolten, molten, sorry, precious metal. Beloved, that's a great picture of the work of God and Christ in your life. Fire does burn away dross and refuge, but Fire refines the precious metals. And we understand that we can't do everything, but what I can do, I will do. 
I must do. And what I must do by God's energizing power and grace, I will do with the virtue of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Finally, beloved, as we now approach the communion table, think of the word fellowship, the word fellowship, koinonia. In classical Greek, the word that's translated as fellowship of the body of Christ was used to describe a business partnership where individuals committed to one another to share in the risks of the business venture and to share in reaping the profits, the gains of the business adventure. Also, this word was classically used to describe a marriage, how a husband and wife commit to one another to share everything together. And what's interesting, the word fellowship doesn't appear in the Gospels. It doesn't appear until Acts chapter 2, verse 42, at the birth of the church. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's the birth of this special kind of fellowship that we enjoy in general in church and in particular even as we will go to the communion table. Beloved, fellowship, we should understand, is where God gives you, where God gives me brothers and sisters that we didn't even know. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer before we come to the table of communion. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you for the beautiful body of Christ. Thank you for our salvation individually. We praise you and thank you, God, that the, every believer in this room, every believer in the world, that we're not part of some amorphous mass without faces, without personalities, that you intimately care and provide and shape and mold each of us individually. And we praise you and thank you that we are part of something so much greater, so much beyond us, which is a reflection of who you are, Christ, and what awaits your glory in eternity in heaven and awaits our blessing in eternal heaven. And now as we approach the table, Lord, we are reminded and we remember, we commemorate, we celebrate, and even in a sense we mourn over the great price you paid on our behalf for our salvation and for your glory. And it is for your glory, Lord Jesus, that we pray and we now approach the table. Amen.